From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official health care provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. After a suspenseful four weeks that saw one wild rumor after the next, Florida's coaching search came to a close with a familiar face taking the job. Former offensive coordinator Dan Mullen is back in Gainesville as the head coach of the Gators and brings with him a wealth of experience and pedigree gained during nine successful seasons leading Mississippi State. On today's show, we'll hear all the details of the search and its impact on the future of the program from Athletic Director Scott Strickland. We'll also talk about Coach Mullen and Gator basketball with FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry and get set for the NCAA Volleyball Tournament with head coach Mary Wise. But first, high-profile coaching searches are never easy, and there were no shortage of names bandied around for the Gators opening over the last month. Now that the smoke is cleared, we wanted to talk to the man who made the ultimate decision and discuss the process that led to it. So we spoke with Scott Strickland and began by asking how he landed on Dan Mullen as the right fit for the orange and blue. You know, Dan was a guy from the very beginning, checked a lot of boxes, was a natural fit. Um, but because of uh, where other schools were in their regular season relative to when we first started this, the process, uh, we knew we had some time to to really vet uh, a lot of different potential options and, and make sure that we were uh, going the right direction. So I had kind of sent word to, uh, you know, I know Dan pretty well, and I know Dan doesn't like dealing with that stuff during the season, which I totally respect. Mm-hmm. And I sent word that I would, because I just wanted him to know that we had an interest uh, and I sent word that uh, I would like to talk to him when there's after their season ended on Thanksgiving, the next day on Friday, just kind of have a co- phone conversation. So uh, we spoke and uh, I told him uh, that I need to have the FSU game the next day. And I said, I want to call you back after that game. And, and, and he, to be honest with you, a lot of coaches are this way, but I know Dan has always been uh, a guy that really, when, when the last regular season game is played, um, that's a, you know, he's gone through a 12 game season. It's pretty spent. I knew he needed some time to, to process. So I called him back within 30 minutes at the end of our FSU game on Saturday and, and had another conversation. I said, Dan, you're, you know, you're the guy that I, I think we, we perfect for this. And, and we'd like to talk to you about being the guy. If this is something you'd be excited about. And he was obviously really excited. And, uh, we talked for a little bit, uh, he hung up and called me back shortly thereafter and said, let's, I'd love to do it. You know, let's, let's figure it out. So it was uh, his energy and enthusiasm for this job uh, was exciting to me and kind of reaffirmed that uh, not only did he check a lot of boxes, but he checked the most important box, which is he wanted to be a Florida Gator. And, and when you stood up at the press conference on Monday, your confidence in him being the right guy was abundantly clear. So I, you just touched on it there for, for a second, but I'm curious, you know, a little bit more in depth, what makes you so confident that he is the right man for this job? Well, I, you know, I, I saw it up close in person for, for several years, um, you know, starting with the attention to details, you know, the, the way he conducts his strength and conditioning program starting in January, which sets the standard for discipline and accountability and toughness and competitiveness within the program. And uh, the way he evaluates and, and recruits prospective student athletes and, and the talent that's coming into the program. Um, the way 
he conducts his practices, the way he game plans and the way his teams execute and how hard they play and how hard they practice. And, you know, I, I just I saw him go to a place where he exceeded by a lot the uh, historical level of success that had been there. And he not only uh, exceeded the level of success, he did it on a consistent basis at a place that that's, no one has ever done. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, and I know the raw numbers don't look the same, but in a lot of ways, the impact he had on Mississippi State is is similar to the impact Coach Spurrier had here at Florida in the 90s as far as just totally changing the mindset of a fan base and perception of a program. You know, Dan went to a place that had been a coaching graveyard, and for nine years he made it one of the most consistently steady teams in this league. I think only four SEC schools have been to a ball game each of the last eight years. One of those is Mississippi State. Wow. Think about that for a minute. And he did it uh, by recruiting the right kind of young people, by holding them accountable, by putting structure and discipline in place, um, by putting a really good staff together, by creating a lot of energy and excitement in the fan base because of the way he he interacts with them. And uh, I just I knew that with the, an access to the resources and the talent we have in the state of Florida, that you know that would really project well. And so I, as I said, he checks a lot of boxes. Nine years as a head coach in the SEC. Obviously, he was here for four years on Urban Meyer's staff as the offensive coordinator and was part of two national championship teams. Uh, he may be the most experienced coach ever to come into a job like this. Uh, if you look at his background from a uh, experience as a head coach in the SEC and and also knowing the institution, it's a really rare combination. And I think the Gators are going to benefit from it. One of the things I thought was interesting in your comments on Monday was you talked about among the things you used during this process was some of the advanced analytics that you looked at. Can you talk about what that means exactly and how that influenced the, the search? I, I wouldn't say it really influenced the search other than it kind of uh, it probably more than it, it sent us looking in certain directions. It probably kept us from looking maybe in some areas where we, where we probably didn't need to. But basically, the you know, the way those analytics try to isolate the impact of coaching is they they look at historical recruiting averages of a program and then how they did once that coach was in place. And then they looked at, they kind of come up with, with talent levels based on the recruiting that has occurred at the institution, all the different schools. And from, from game to game, the analytics can tell you which team is more talented going into the game. And so if a coach has more talent and loses the game, that's a, that's a problem. If a coach has less talent and wins a game, that's pretty impressive. If the two teams have equal talent, the team that wins is that's kind of telling as well. And obviously anything can happen on a given Saturday. But when you when you start stacking up several years worth of that data, it starts to paint a picture of what kind of impact the head coach is having on his program. And in in the case of Dan, you look at how he did at Mississippi State when he had the same or better talent than the opposition. And it was pretty remarkable. There weren't very many Saturdays that, that weren't good for him when he had same or better talent than the, than the opponent. And history will tell you that at the University of Florida, we typically have comparable, if not better, talent than the people we line up against. And so it's, it's really important to get a guy that, that is going to win those games. And then also, he, you know, he was recruiting at historical levels there for that institution. And, and if we recruit at historically good levels here in Florida, we're going to be pretty good. You know, looking at the, the Mississippi State side of this, and you mentioned this on Monday, but obviously you're in a unique position. You're an alumnus. You were the athletic director at your alma mater. And now you're in a position where the guy that you felt was right for the job 
was their most successful coach in history. So can you talk about that side of it and how that weighed on you as you settled on Dan Mullen? Well, it, uh, if I'm being completely honest, I would say that was that was probably a, a, a huge underlying narrative uh, that was going on in my head the last four weeks because uh, the day we started the search and I started putting the list of names together, I, you know, Dan kind of stood out on that list. And candidly, uh, because that, that gave me a lot of heartburn, uh, the idea of hiring Mississippi State's coach. Candidly, I, my one of my goals became I'm, I'm going to try to find somebody who I think is just as good uh, that would do just as good a job here at Florida that would prevent me from hiring Mississippi State's coach. And um, obviously, I talked to a few people and, and researched a lot more. And um, I got to a point in the process where I thought, you know, the, the best person for the University of Florida is Dan Mullen. And I have the responsibility of doing what I think is best for the University of Florida, not what is necessarily best for me personally. And so I, I made that decision and, and it's, you know, it's hard on uh, a lot of relationships I have back there because, uh, you know, the great thing about college athletics is people have a lot of emotion and passion invested mm-hmm. in it. And sometimes the not so good thing about college athletics is is that same level of investment of emotion and passion. And so there's some people uh, back where I come from who don't really understand that decision. And uh, I'm probably not going to get alumnus of the year award anytime soon, <laughs> but um, I had no choice. I, you know, when I was athletic director at Mississippi State, I woke up every day trying to make decisions that I thought were best for Mississippi State. And now that that I'm fortunate enough to, to be in a place like Florida and they've entrusted me with the responsibility of managing this athletic program, I wake up every day thinking, how can I make the Gators as good as we can possibly be? And, and unfortunately, uh, those two worlds collided in this case. And uh, I say unfortunately. Uh, I don't mean that from where we ended up because I'm fired up that, that Dan Mullen is our head coach. I just mean on a personal level, it was unfortunate mm-hmm. that that occurred. But uh, the really positive thing, and, and I take solace in knowing that a lot of people the last few years have worked really hard to build that program at Mississippi State. And Dan obviously deserves most of that credit. But a lot of fans, a lot of supporters, student body have really invested in making that program as good as it possibly can be. And they've got wonderful facilities. They have a great game day environment. Uh, and uh, John Cohen has hired a great coach to replace Dan Mullen. And I know they're going to continue to win. And I know the Gators are going to uh, get back to where we expect to be. And we're not in the same division, so it's not exactly a zero-sum game. I, and so I, I take a lot of pride in that part. Mm. But uh, my focus and obviously the, the reason for making the decision was what was best for Florida. As you went through all of this, there's the social media side of it, which was just a fascinating subplot. But I'm curious how difficult it is to conduct something so highly sensitive like a coaching search in this age of social media. Well, you know, the the challenging part is the social media allows a lot of bad information to get out really quickly. And it was amazing some of the narratives that were being formed uh, and people were taking as absolute fact, which just were not that that wasn't the case. And and and, and we weren't going to come out and respond to it. We said the day that we you know we started the process that we weren't going to respond to rumors and, and that there were going to be a lot of bad information uh, out and about and, and, and urge people not to, to take everything with a grain of salt. And it's, it's unbelievable what that does to high profile coaching searches in this day and age. And I can't imagine some of the searches in the past that led to the hirings of really successful coaches. You know, you take Alabama, they they had a, uh, I think, a, a seven or eight week search process to hire Nick Saban back in uh, 2006. And uh, in this day and age, I don't know that social media would have allowed them to take their time to make that hire. So if you take that another step, if social media had been prevalent in 2006, Nick Saban's not the coach at Alabama. And think wow. about how that would change the history of SEC football in the last decade. So obviously, it can have an impact. If you're not careful, it can speed up your process. And uh, obviously, that you want the process to take the time it needs to take 
for you to make the right decision. And really, when you're in the in the middle of the search, you've got to shut all that off. And and I uh, early on in the process, I was I was checking in on social media. But once it got to a stage where we were really getting close and serious on some, the finish line, I think the last ten days of the search, I took a I took a sabbatical from social media just because I didn't need the noise and I didn't I needed to turn down the volume and be able to really focus on on what we were doing. When you were still locked into to Twitter before your sabbatical, I'm curious, what were some of the craziest things you saw in there? Maybe the, the most far-fetched things that you knew just came from, from nowhere. It'd be hard to pick. Um, <laughs> most everything I read seemed to, to have no basis in fact. And, you know, there was really just a handful of people who actually knew what was going on. And so... People were, were guessing. People would come up with stuff that there was something out there about a, somebody signing a non-binding agreement. I, I don't know what that means. Uh, I don't, you know, that's like my the grocery list, I guess, is a non-binding agreement. But, um, that's the kind of thing that, uh, you know, you just kind of shake your head at when you hear about it. And uh, you don't really let it get become part of the process because you got to focus so much on make sure you're, you're doing the right thing. So now that this is complete, hopefully your last coaching search in any sport for a while, where does the focus shift now? What's your next big priority that you're working on? Well, facilities continue to be a focal point. And, uh, you know, the three projects that we've listed as priorities are uh, renovations to softball and baseball and and building a standalone football complex. And we've engaged design teams for uh, two of those projects. And the third baseball we're doing at the moment, we're we're selecting uh, those architects right now. Um, softball will probably be the first on the board just because of uh, its scope. It's going to be about a $10 million project, and, and we'll get jumping on that as soon as the season's over and renovate Katie Presley Stadium out there where uh, Tim Walton's team uh, plays so well. And and then uh, baseball and, and football will be right there, right uh, on a similar timetable, and, and we'll try to get going on those as soon as we can. And um, we got to raise some money, and, and uh, we've got to also make sure we're, we're designing facilities that are going to serve the Gators for a long, long time in a positive way. Scott, final thing for you. Now that you have uh, completed this search, I imagine you have a little more free time than you had before. I always like to ask you what is uh, intriguing you in a pop culture sense, what movies, what books, what TV, what's next on your your pop culture agenda now that you have a a little more free time? Well, uh, I did go see one movie during the search. I went and saw the, the Thor movie which uh, I, I tend to like uh, the Marvel movies just because uh, they're good escapism. Yes. You needed good escapism, didn't you? <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was healthy. I, I did enjoy that. <laughs> I, uh, I've got some books to read that have stacked up. Uh, I do want to go see the Orient, uh, Murder on the Orient, Orient Express movie. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that one yet? I haven't. It's on my list. I'm, I'm, waiting, I'm waiting for my read, movie pass to arrive. <laughs> I read the book, so now I kind of want to see the movie. And So i got some movies to catch up on. I'll see the new Star Wars movie, obviously. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm sure there'll be some others the holiday season. I'll have some time on my hands that uh, I'll get a chance to watch and catch up and unplug and uh, recharge and, and be ready to go once January rolls around. Well, Scott, congratulations on hiring Dan Mullen. I know Gator fans are very excited about the future of the program and uh, trying, to, trying to relax a little bit now and, and uh, dust off your, your shoes a little bit, okay? All right. Thanks so much. At the same time the coaching search was wrapping up on the East Coast, the Gator basketball team was on the other side of the country putting on a dazzling offensive show at the PK-80 tournament in Portland. We wanted to get Chris Harry's perspective on a phenomenal showing by Mike White's team that came up just short of a title, but first got both his and Scott's impressions on Dan Mullen coming back to Gainesville. To me, you look at the way 
his track record is, and it speaks for itself, uh, what he did at Mississippi State. You know, once, once I realized he was the guy and you started kind of studying him and you see a program that won 32 games in the eight years before he got there and won 69 in the nine years since he was there. I mean, he totally turned around the program. That's a 180. I mean, more than doubled its wins, won five bowl games, got that program to number one in the nation in 2014. And so obviously he, he fit that box as having success as a head coach in the SEC, which, uh, I, you know, was one of the Scott Strickland's, uh, you know, boxes, as he likes to say, he wanted to check. But I think he more so, maybe more than anything else, his uh, history with the Florida program, I don't think that can be underestimated. Uh, he's been in the program. He knows the culture. And basically, uh, on his way from the airport the other day, uh, one of the questions uh, was, what is it that you took from Florida the first time that you know can help you this time? And he says, there's nothing that I'm going to be doing today or nothing around the fan base or the expectations that will surprise me. I've been here. I know the place. Uh, we succeeded back then, and you know he wants to get it back to there. So I, I just think you can't really put a value on having a, a coach come back and take over the program who did uh, achieve a high level of success in his time here. I realize it was as offensive coordinator, but we all know Adam. The offensive coordinator position at Florida is heavily scrutinized, and Dan Mullen, for the most part, passed that test, and now he's going to try to do it as a head coach. I don't know. I can say a whole lot more than what Scott just said. I mean, when you win the way he did at Mississippi State, you obviously can coach because that's one of the toughest jobs in the Southeastern Conference, uh, if not if not the toughest, to recruit people to Starkville and uh, get them the number one in the country to develop a quarterback like Dak Prescott. So, yeah, and the ties. I mean, he comes back here. He's slashing his uh, national championship bling. Um, I mean, there's a statue down on the uh, outside the stadium here of a Heisman Trophy winner that, that he obviously had a – had a lot to do with getting him that that hardware. And again, the point Scott made about having the uh, Florida ties and just knowing how passionate the fans are, knowing how it works to day-to-day basis. And now once he has a, uh, a built-in um, resource in terms of transition with Scott Strickland, because obviously uh, he was with Scott at Mississippi State. They know each other. They know how each other works, know how each other thinks. He isn't a guy who is already like wondering, you know, what improvements are going to be made to the facilities. He, it, Scott was able to explain to him about the, the facility plan, the $105 million capital improvement initiative that's on the board. So he's going to get a standalone football complex down the line. And obviously he hit the ground run and he's on the recruiting trail. He's already doing the stuff that a coach does now. He has to get his house in order get the coaches he wants in here that's a transition obviously but uh all in all when you scott strickland said it best certainly they considered other people but at the end of the day strickland said at the press conference this was the best guy and the best fit for florida of the people that they thought about and they got their man and certainly if you watched dan mullen's press conference uh which i did i was i was on the other side of the country with the basketball team but uh this guy was obviously very, very excited to be a part of the Florida program now and to be back here. Yeah, as you talked about his vision for the program and especially for the offense and quarterback development, what, what stood out to you about that part of his plan and why that should excite Gator fans moving forward? Well, I think mostly, Adam, I mean, he's had success in developing that position. You can go all the way back to his days at Bowling Green as uh, Urban Meyer's quarterbacks coach. And then he gets to Utah and, uh, you know, helped develop Alex Smith, who all these years later remains uh, one of the NFL's top quarterbacks. 
We know what Florida, what he did with Tebow, and also played a role in recruiting Cam Newton here, although that obviously didn't work out in terms for the Gators, but I think we can all say Cam Newton's been a successful quarterback. (laughs) And then, of course, like Chris mentioned, Dak Prescott and Mitch Fitzgerald at Mississippi State. So, you you know, that's four different spots, his last four spots. They've all had success at the quarterback position. We all know that in the last eight years since Tim Tebow left, Florida has had a you know, they've been grasping at straws there some. Uh, they've had moments, but they haven't had sustained success. And I think, you know, you have to have a consistency at the quarterback position, Adam. We all know that to win big, especially. And uh, that's something that Mullen has uh, had over his career. And that's a big reason why he was able to have that good run at Mississippi State, because he always had good quarterback play. And uh, you know, one thing that he did mention specifically about uh, developing quarterbacks, I mean, he still maintains contact with guys like Prescott and Smith, and they're picking each other's brains constantly. Like, what are they learning now in the NFL from their coaches there that maybe he can teach his guys mm-hmm. at this level? I uh, found that interesting. And, uh, you know, he's, he's nicknamed the quarterback whisperer by some media. That's kind of fits just because he's had that success. And we'll see how it translates here. But, you know, his track record's pretty sharp. Throughout this process, we've heard people say, well, you know, we need to make Florida football fun again. And it's interesting because if you think about it, when Dan Mullen was in Gainesville, that was a time when Florida football was fun. And now it's tying the current administration back to the past and back to those players who were part of such a great run for Florida, not just Tebow, but you're hearing from a lot of other guys who are part of that run. I mean, guys like Joe Hayden, you, you can drop a lot of names. So what do you think the significance is of that, of being able to bring back some of those players that tie to Dan Mullen and to such a successful part of Florida football history? I think he referenced that in his, uh, in his news conference. And what I saw was a lot of uh, uh, positive responses on social media about it, whether you're talking about James Bates or whether you're talking about Johnny Rutledge, a guy who was here in the 90s with the Spurrier championships and what have you. You know, that's big to guys. I mean, when Steve Spurrier got here as ambassador last year, he talked about how important it should be to get the old guys back, um, the former players. Uh, Jim McElwain wanted to start doing it more um, um, last year, tried to make that a priority, even hired a guy who was in charge of, uh, you know, updating connections with, with former players. I think that's something that really needs to be done, especially when you're talking about, you know, the last 27 years or so, the 90s and then the Urban Meyer era and everything. And every, people cherish those times. And there's a connection with the championships and a connection with success that uh, can't be understated. I think Dan Mullen is going to be someone who's going to be real receptive to obviously uh, bringing guys back and and having them at practice when possible and what have you and maybe getting them to booster clubs and that kind of thing. So always a good thing. I I think the best programs do that. They don't shy away from their past history. Um, Some coaches might be intimidated by the past. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dan Mullen wants to embrace the past, and I think that's always going to be a positive when your past has so much success in it. You know, Mullen's working at a very fast pace right now in terms of getting things in order. And at the time we're recording this, he's already hired a couple of assistants that Scott and Gator fans are going to be very familiar with as well. Yeah, you know, really first full day on the job, they added Billy Gonzalez and John Hefsey, who, you know, have been part of this program previously uh, under Urban Meyer's regime. They obviously worked with uh, Dan Mullen at Mississippi State. So, again, that goes back to the the thing that his history here 
where he had a lot of success, guess what? You want to be around guys who shared that success. And, and those guys experienced it here at Florida, all his assistants, and they experienced it under Mullen out at Mississippi State. And now they're going to try to recapture it here at Florida. And that's the way the coaching business works. I mean, these head coaches likes to uh, like to bring, uh, you know, familiar guys with them. And obviously, Billy Gonzalez and John Hevesy are two names that Florida fans are going to be very familiar with. And you're right. They're already uh, recruiting. Uh, Dan Mullen, uh, follow him on Twitter. You're already seeing some pictures of him out there with some recruits. He mentioned that in his press conference, they got to get back to recruiting first and foremost. I mean, uh, we all know that is the lifeblood of the program. It's an area that I think the Gators have maybe lacked some in the last couple of years. And that's why you saw what happened this year, uh, even though they had some misfortune also. But the depth just maybe hasn't been there. And Dan Mullen recognizes that and is going to get out there and, uh, and try to rebuild. And one of the reasons for the speed with which this is happening is because of the early signing period, which is new this year. So can you talk about how that factors into the timeline here? Yeah, you know, for the first time, the uh, December National Signing Day period, you know, December, what, 20 through 22nd, you got a three-day window there where for the first time, uh, recruits can go ahead and sign and uh, and get that checked off before National Signing Day. So obviously, in this specific case with Mullen, there's a lot of uncertainty there. He's got guys that they've already got committed at Florida, but which of those guys were really going to be committed enough to sign in December? He's probably uh, looking at some guys at Mississippi State maybe that to bring to Florida or those guys you can get signed early. Uh, so there's a lot of uncertainty there. That's why you're going to see not only Dan Mullen, but coaches all around the country. I mean, it's going to be a very active uh, December for these guys until that early signing period uh, happens because uh, you can add some players right away that maybe helps you take a different approach from that period until National Sign Day because you know if you have a few guys signed, especially uh, maybe in key points of emphasis or positions of emphasis, then you can focus on other guys until signing day. So it's going to be interesting, uh, really, to see how that impacts the sport this year, Adam. I think also the other thing is if you got, you got a guy committed and he's maybe on the fence now with because Dan Mullen's the coach, uh-huh. you know, he's going to know, well, I don't want to sign earlier. Okay, well, that this works two ways now. Yep. So, we, you know, now we're going to dive back into the pool and will that will that scholarship be there for you down the line? So it's something that both sides are going to have to think about. And I think it's a fascinating and unique dynamic, given that this is the first year. We'll see how that all plays out. But it's certainly unique because of the, you know, the switchover in the in the coaching situation. OK, so we'll obviously keep tabs on football here in the next few weeks. And there's going to be a lot more to report. We'll be on top of all of that for you guys. But moving on, it was also a very big weekend for Gator basketball out on the other side of the country. Chris, you were there at the PK-80 tournament where Florida really turned heads nationally and and nearly took out number one in the process. Yeah, and probably should have taken out number one. Uh, Florida had Duke on the ropes, up 17 with 10 minutes to go, and even worse, probably up 10 with four minutes to go. And things kind of collapsed at that point. Uh, Duke made five of its last six shots. The only miss they had became an offensive stick back and a goal. And Florida missed uh, five of their last six shots, turned the ball over three times, missed the front end of a one-on-one, just didn't finish the game, and certainly left uh, Portland as well as they played. And as much respect as they certainly uh, uh, gained nationally from the people that were there and the people that were able to uh, stay up and watch the games, um, they really felt like that was a missed opportunity. I don't think they went away from that saying, oh, you know, we were so close. They went away saying, no, we should have won this game. That's a good thing. It's something they can learn from, something they can build on. But uh, having been there, 
it was a high level, incredible event, Adam, with a lot of great basketball teams. And uh, we're sitting here talking about the Duke game, but um, the Gonzaga game was about as pulsating and scintillating a basketball event as anybody could have possibly seen. It was uh, high intensity. The atmosphere was fantastic. It was pro Gonzaga times 20. Uh, and Florida was able to endure that game, um, answer just about everything Gonzaga did. And, to, and Gonzaga, you know, did the same to Florida until the Gators were able to win that game, a 111-105 in double overtime. And uh, just a, a, a fantastic showing, whether we're talking about Jalen Hudson and certainly a Chris Chioza. Uh, put his name out there in a way that it had not been there, even in light of the shot he made at Wisconsin. I think people now know that Chris Chioza is one of the best point guards in the country, someone not just known for his speed, but someone who can do a lot of different things, including rebounding the basketball, because he, he just he just had everything on display in those last two games. And I think a lot of people now respect Florida and look at Florida in a in a completely different light. All you need to know is they were seventh in the country. They lost that game to Duke, and they moved up to sixth in the country. There's so many people that are not paying attention to what the Gators are doing. I guess the question, Chris, from what you've seen and the makeup of this team, I mean, is this a, a top-five type team? Are they going to continue doing this all season long, or did they just have a great weekend where they were making a ton of shots? They're a really, really good basketball team, and I, I don't know if I can put a five label on them or a ten label on them. Just know that they're going to be in contention for the Southeastern Conference Championship. They're going to be contention for a very high seed in the NSA tournament. You're talking about a team that now has four guys, okay, who have scored 26 points or more, three of them at 30 or more since last March. How do you defend that? Those are Golden State-like numbers. Jalen Hudson had 35 against Gonzaga. Igor Kolachev had 34 in a game early this year. Kalon hung 35 on Wisconsin last year, a really good defensive team in Wisconsin in, the, in Madison Square Garden in the Sweet 16. And Chioza went, I think it was 26-6-11 and 11 in, that, uh, in that game against Gonzaga. So uh, we haven't talked about DeAndre Ballard, who has shown, flashed some stuff. Um, we haven't seen the best out of Keystone, obviously, yet, and Kavarius Hayes is certainly somebody who uh, the Gators need more from in that front court spot. But how do you defend this team? OK, um, not everyone's going to have a Marvin Bagley or a Jonathan Williams to uh, to dump the ball into the low post. Mike White going in the season was kind of hesitant to play to go so small. But now he sees what small ball can do with this personnel that he has. I think it's something that he's going to lean on mightily. Um, that could change some in the event John Igbunu gets back uh, into the SEC season. That's, you know, his return is projected sometime in January. I don't know exactly when in January, but uh, this team right now is one that, you know, who do you concentrate on the most? You have to go in trying to take something away, but Florida will have answers offensively. Um, the best way to probably beat Florida right now is to have a really big guy down in the low post and get the ball inside. But not everybody, like I said, uh, Marvin Bagley is a different animal. I mean, he went for 30 and 12, I believe, in that game. Um, was virtually unstoppable. He actually missed a few uh, layups and stickbacks that he probably would not miss on a normal occasion. But uh, Florida obviously acquitted itself very well. And, and Mike Krzyzewski said after the game that may be the best uh, team they'll face all season. So what's next for the Gators? Obviously a little bit of rest after a long trip and three games in four days, but now another big stretch on short rest is coming up as well. Yeah, Florida's off uh, this week, but they get right back at it next Monday against Florida State, a team the Gators have lost to three straight years. 
Florida State is undefeated now. They'll play Loyola of Chicago. Then they have a game uh, in Newark, New Jersey against Cincinnati, which is one of the best teams in the country. So they're going to find out a lot about this basketball team. Right now, what they have to concentrate on is what are, what are they going to do in situations? And I think Mike White mentioned this after the Duke game. They're going to be in situations where they're going to have big leads. How do they play with big leads against really good teams? Um, Mike White talked about that after Duke. He said they kept playing the same way. That's, that's why they had a 17-point lead, because they played fast and they shoot the ball a lot. But he did reference the fact, you know, they had those live ball turnovers late in the game that were really, really uh, hurtful. Uh, either Jalen Hudson trying to split a couple defenders, which he was able to do. You know, he just didn't do it late in the game when Duke was buckled down and Duke made the defensive plays to win the game. So, uh, you know, there's just some uh, uh, self-reflection on on some things because this team is so unique in the way it can score. Eventually, they're going to have to wonder, is there a point where we got to pull back a little bit and uh, play to close the game out? Because there's going to be other circumstances like this down the line against some really good teams. The Southeastern Conference has already shown it's going to be much, much better than it was last year. I don't know if anybody saw Alabama almost beat Minnesota with three guys at the end of that game. That was game. incredible. <laughs> that, that that was truly incredible. And I was watching that game actually with Jay Billis uh, during the during one of Florida's practices. Colin Sexton had 40 points in that game, including like seven, I think. We didn't have anybody to pass to. But, I mean, the SEC is going to be uh, much, much better. And Florida's going to have to figure out some things with itself. But, uh, you know, they're 5-1. and one. They're off to a great start. And uh, they're going to be a very, very exciting team to watch as the season progresses. All right, let's jump into our PAT, uh, which is going to be about the college football playoff, which is a serious point of contention at the moment, especially with people who are upset that Alabama is sitting at number five in the rankings and are looking to jump back in, assuming there are any upsets happening this weekend. So what I would ask you guys is, not knowing yet what's going to happen, if there is an upset in that top four, should Alabama be the next team into the playoff, despite not even being the champions of the SEC West? You know, Adam, I really do believe they, they should be. Um, I just look at, is there any team on the in the top 10 or in this conversation, if you ask the coach, which team would you really not like to play against in the Final Four playoff? And guess what? I'm going to guess Alabama is going to win that poll just because it's Nick Saban. You know his group. It was a bad game. They got handled. You hardly ever see them get handled the way they got handled against Auburn. Hats off to Auburn and for the game plan there and for the physical way they won that game. But I, I would have a hard time imagining that happen again. Nick Saban is just such a, a great coach. Uh, he adjusts better than any coach maybe in college football. And, uh, you know, a rematch, that wouldn't surprise me at all if Alabama won because you know they're going to play better. Like, who else are you going to put in there? You know, Ohio State, let's say Wisconsin loses. Ohio State's got a horrible loss on its resume to Iowa. 31 points. Gave up 55. Gave up 55. The championship games are going to definitely this weekend kind of shake this out. But Auburn and Georgia, I mean, the loser of that game, if they're out, you know, I have no problem putting Alabama back in there. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to butt into this conversation if I may ask. Yeah. Yes. Okay. First of all, first of all let's t- Alabama in a way is being penalized because Florida State ended up, you know, having the season they had because. Correct. He, Talking about they haven't played anybody. Well, this was a little uh, a little different Florida State situation, and and yet Florida State wasn't a very good football team this year. You know, they lost their quarterback and what have you. But let's say if the upset that you're talking about is Georgia beating uh, Auburn, Georgia is in 
and and that's rightfully so because they've avenged a horrible loss from a couple weeks ago. Correct. Uh, other than that, I I think Alabama would have an argument, especially like Scott referenced that uh, Ohio State you, you can't get killed, but you know give up fifty five points and and then sit there and claim that you're one of those teams. But I have to say that maybe the Scheidenfreud in me, I think it was kind of there's probably some people who enjoyed watching Nick Saban lobby. <laughs> okay, <laughs> try to get into get into this uh, tournament, if you will. Um, but at the same time, if Georgia beats Auburn and Auburn has a three-loss team and Georgia is now a one-loss team, I think Georgia has done to Auburn what Alabama couldn't, and I think Georgia deserves that other spot. No, this is uh, it's a very intriguing weekend. Hopefully, the games live up to the expectations because certainly uh, rivalry weekend was not quite as exciting as a lot of us hoped it would be. So. We'll, uh, we'll have to wait and see. But in the meantime, I know you guys will continue writing about Dan Mullen, everything that's going on with Florida football, and certainly Chris will be on top of basketball as they make preparations for their return to the court in a few days. So check them out at Gators Chris, at Gators Scott, and all of their stuff on FloridaGators.com. And we will be back next week to talk more. Guys, thank you so much. Thank you, Adam. Thanks, Adam. For a team that has gotten so close in recent years, many in the volleyball world think this is the year for Florida to return to the Final Four for the first time in 15 years and make a run at the program's first national title. With the tournament getting underway this weekend in Gainesville, the longtime voice of Gator Volleyball Tom Collette sat down with Mary Wise to discuss the state of the program and what they'll need to do to make a deep run. Well, it all starts uh, with talent players. I mean, there's no question that we've been very fortunate that we've had uh, such great players and people come through this program. But it's one of the reasons why uh, many, many years ago, I always had an eye on um, the University of Florida from afar because I felt that the school, their commitment to excellence, not just in men's basketball and football, but in all sports. Um, and this dates back many decades. The Florida was winning across the entire athletic board long before it became the thing to do. And so one eye on the, the program and thought you could recruit here. You could recruit from all over the country, all over the world to the University of Florida. And thus, we've been able to do that, bring in great players. Great players win matches. You just wrapped up a regular season 25-1, and 17-1 in conference play and sharing that 23rd SEC title with the University of Kentucky, and you earn a top-four seed, the number-two seed overall in the NCAA tournament, the seventh time in program history you've been one of the top-four seeds. What does that say initially for this team and what they've done? Well, the seed is definitely a reflection on this year's success, dating back to August when we opened up with those two huge wins over Texas and Nebraska back-to-back nights in front of record crowds. And then from that point on, it was um, just trying to get better from match to match. Uh, the the loss, the one loss to Kentucky against a very good Kentucky team. I know there are people throughout the country that may not recognize and understand how good Kentucky is, but obviously the committee did because there's only four teams that were given top seeds, and two of them came out of the SEC. It's a great reflection on our conference uh, how great of seasons to this date both Kentucky and Florida have had. Seems like we've gone back to the future with the NCAA tournament. Regionals at campus sites, again, for the highest seeds in the region. Great for Florida this year, but is it furthering the game? That's a great question, Tom, and I'm not convinced 
that on-campus sites is really in the best interest of the student-athlete experience. Oh, if you're the home team, it's great, but you just, you work so hard to get into the tournament, you're playing against the best teams with the best players in the country, and you just want a fair shot. And my question is, is it fair when the difference between a, a four seed and a five seed is one of those teams is traveling, one of those teams is playing at home? And is that at this point in time in 2017, is that a reflection on where our sport is today? I would rather have seen, I get it, the NCAA committee, they want to drive attendance. And we had some neutral sites that just weren't selling the tickets. I don't think you abandon the idea. I think what you do is you get the top schools in the country, their marketing departments and their coaches, and you bring them together. And how do you drive attendance? And you put the ideas together. Then you put some money into it. And I guarantee you, I I'm convinced we could sell out neutral sites. You just got to work a little. It's like everything else. Nothing comes easy. You got to work at it. We can make it happen. Our sport has become so popular around the country. It has been around the world for a while, but it is around the country. We could sell out. You just got to get somebody to care. We've had many discussions through the years, both on and off the microphone, if you will. You've always said to win a national championship, it helps to have the best player on the court. Ramat Alassane, SEC Player of the Year, three-time All-American, certain to be named for a fourth time, only on the court for three rotations. Does she qualify? She definitely is in that mix, Tom, um, to be one of the best players in the country. You're right. We've said that for years. The difference was there just weren't that many Player of the Year candidates around the country. You're looking at a couple players, two or three maybe, but our, our sport has evolved. To, it's much closer to like where men's basketball is, that even the non-Power 5 conference, those teams have elite players. And in volleyball, similar to basketball, really it just takes one who can completely change the dynamics of a team. For us, Ramat, even though it's only three rotations, how she can affect the game both with her attacking and her blocking is so unique. Her numbers, these are once-in-a-decade type numbers. We knew when we recruited her she had a chance to leave her mark all over the record book. That's exactly what Ramada's done. Now our goal is to make her career last as long as possible. As we look at the skater team heading into the NCAA tournament, the big dance, your middles, the aforementioned Ramat Alassane and Rachel, have been consistent point producers all season. Rachel making a big step in her sophomore year. Shina now on a hot hitting streak. Carly, very low air, recently playing her best volleyball as a senior. How do you like the Gators' chances to advance deep into this tournament? Well, we're going to need every one of those players plus our libero, CK, and the combination of the freshman and sophomore class that are playing in the L2 position. You know, Tom, this is the first time at Florida that we've had a team that arguably its defense was further ahead than its offense. We've always been kind of an offensive juggernaut. We just haven't had some of the pieces to be an elite defensive team. I think to do that, you've got to have great servers. And we've got some very good servers. I would love to have our good become very good and our very good become great over the course of the next few uh, several matches. And then you've got to be elite blocking. That we are. And you've got to be just scrappy, hard-nosed, gritty defense. Well, nobody embraces that more than our libero CK. Uh, Knope, in terms of, you know, she's playing with a broken hand. I mean, what does that tell you about her? 
her grit. So defensively, I think there's some really great things you you can do. But when you play against the best, and in the NCAA tournament, you got 64 teams that have all had great seasons, or in some cases maybe just a great run at the right time, is that the differences between teams are so small. You just you got to be consistent in your side out offense, and then you got to get points where you can. And our defense will allow us to do that. Two words that I can think of that describe this season. You've said a lot of words already. Ferocious, gritty, determination. To me, versatility and depth. Two trademarks of this season. Be ready when you're called. Whether it be the 5-1 or the 5-2, different options at the 0-2 spot. Address that. It's really one of the things, um, as you described, that has made us so successful is the depth and even the depth of the players who may not be getting court time, but they make us better in practice every day. I look at what has been a mainstay of this program for, for quite some time, the middle blockers, and that obviously Rachel and Ramad are getting the playing time, but there are two players in Taylor Kellum and Darielle King that are working so hard every day to make those other two better. And it's the combined effort of those four are the the depth of our six backcourt defensive players or the number of outside hitters and the four of them and how closely they work together so it's a team with a lot of talent players that have helped each other get better embraced their role and accepted that that you don't know when your time is going to come but a la Morgan Greer in the last SEC match of the year for SEC title Morgan comes off the bench and hits over 400 a player who did not get any playing time early on but kept chipping away at her game and working so hard that's the story of the 2017 Gator volleyball team still a lot of volleyball to be played in the postseason but when you reflect on the regular season only one loss on the year at home against Kentucky, which we alluded to earlier, which the Gators then avenged in Lexington in one of your signature performances of the season. How did that win propel you now for this stretch towards the tournament, winners of 11 straight? Well, we have used actually both Kentucky matches as great learning experiences. The first time we're understanding that a team that is that talented, we just didn't have an answer for the speed of their offense, how often they were in system but we had the two-week period and we addressed the second time we played them as it's an NCAA match I would have thought hoped that Kentucky be a top four seed but I wasn't convinced it could actually happen but we sold it to the players we're gonna play an NCAA team a very good NCAA team on the road with a whole lot riding on it that's what the tournament's all about you've got great teams with great players and now you're in the do or die situation the pressure the pressure of that match and not to run away from it but rather to embrace it and that's what the team did back on November 1st perfect segue how did the tight adversity filled final regular season match at Missouri prepare this group for the big dance a match again against an NCAA team in Missouri with one of the elite left side players in the country and middles. Uh, the Missouri team, uh, we knew if they were healthy, they would be a team that would be really hard to get, especially on their home court. So for us, down 0-1, down seven points in the second set, looking at going down 0-2, right square in the face. It was it was really a gut check time. It was a moment where we had to put away all fear and find, is there another level of competitiveness that to get past the scoreboard and to find something inside of us to propel us to a, get back into the match and then hopefully win a match and we saw it we saw it on the faces in the play of Carly and Ramat and Shina and CK 
And who does that describe? The seniors. Finally, Mary, it's been said about this tournament, about March Madness, a lot of the tournament boils down to matchups. Do you like the region the Gators are in and with that potential to reach the first Final Four since 2003? Well, Tom, after what happened a year ago, a year ago where in the first round match we played some really good volleyball for three sets and played some really good volleyball for about the two, next two and a half sets. And momentum in this sport is, is just a, it's kind of a scary thing. And Florida State, credit them and their senior-laden team from a year ago, won that match. Here we were up 2-0, and we never even advanced to the regional. So if what we learned anything, it's that you cannot take anything for granted. So I promise you that there isn't anybody that was around here a year ago that has looked past this first weekend. We understand Alabama State they're now a veteran team. They were in the same position a year ago. Everybody back but their libero. Um, we know, we've watched them enough on video how hard they're going to play. And I know that fans, they're not, that's a team you're not familiar with in the volleyball circles. But I, I'm going to tell you, as athletic as they are, you can understand why they've had such a great season. And then we will watch the College of Charleston and at large team um, and Miami and what they do. It just, it's, where we are in women's volleyball, I think any coach would tell you, you just cannot get past the fir- the next match at hand because it's just this is not your mother's or your grandmother's volleyball anymore. It is both the best of our game and the part that will drive coaches crazy is the parody. Mary, thanks so much for sharing some of your time with us, and good luck in the NCAA tournament. Thank you, Tom. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. We'll be back next Thursday with an all-new episode, so don't miss it. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, thanking you for joining us on Gator Tales.